0: What's up, all you beautiful people? It's your boy Hobart coming to you on this episode eight of the Bartcast. Um, today is Monday, June fifteenth, and uh, live, live from the Oakland Studios in Oakland, California, is the. Fantasy vs. Science Fiction Showdown. Showdown, 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 showdown. showdown. That is true, folks. Today, uh, on this episode of the BARTcast, I am having my own cousin, uh, Ethan Zachary Lee, on to debate the virtues of fantasy vs. sci-fi as genre, as, uh, I think primarily from a literature background and, uh, you know, one thing I'll say about my cousin, uh, he's one of the most, I think just intellectually stimulating people to talk to definitely, um, my whole life. I feel like our relationship is, is made up of a mosaic of these, Epic long-form conversations, even before I knew what what a podcast was, I felt like we would kind of podcast with each other. And when I started doing this, he was at the top of my short list of people I wanted to have on to talk about stuff. Um, so I invited him on, and he was like, "Well, I think we should talk about fantasy versus science fiction. you know he's He's a big fantasy fan, um, emphasis on fan. And, uh, you know, I know when I first met him, I think, you know, it wasn't until I was probably seven or eight, you know, meeting my cousin for the first time. I was like, hey, what's up? And he was just kind of like, eh because he had his face in a book. Uh I still remember him in the sleeping bag in my grandparents' house. But that's just the kind of guy he was. And, and uh, the the family lore in our family was that he could recite i think lord of the rings word for word till like chapter seven or something crazy like that he he has this mind and ability to retain information and and he was a giant lord of the rings fan so um he seemed to be the likely candidate to bring on for this kind of discourse and um you know me i'm a a big sci-fi nerd and uh i'm also a big fantasy nerd so uh yeah we get into it a bit about talking about the different genres and their and their strengths and shortcomings um and then pretty quickly it goes tangential on us the conversation but um hopefully you guys like it it's just another you know part of the creative process on here on the bartcast um and you know one thing i'll say is Little bit later in there's some weird kind of audio stuff. It's persisting. There's always it seems like there's one unidentified audible you know, audible audio thing on on this process of learning to record this stuff. But uh but bearing there, I don't think it's too bad. Definitely not as bad as as the last one. I apologies for all you sitting through uh some of those issues in the last episode. I know they were a little bit tougher to listen to. Um yeah but i think that's it uh without any further ado let me introduce to you my cousin ethan lee uh in the fantasy vs. science fiction showdown 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 on this episode eight
1: of the bardcast great to hear from you what a surprise
0: So, Ethan Zachary, Easy Lee, what is up, my cousin?
1: Uh, Not much. I am just finishing up with my first day of the store being partially reopened and people, like, making appointments and sitting on a stool outside the store and masks and me bringing out guitars with gloves for them to try. Are you guys doing,
0: like, some sort of curbside pickup arrangement?
1: Yeah, curbside guitar shopping and repair service and stuff like that. So they still can't come in the store, and I have to try harder in some ways. But it is also, a, you know, it's better than nothing, as they say.
0: For for those of uh, of my listeners out there that may not be familiar with your shop or your trade, do you want to give me just a little, give us all just a brief little uh, explanation of of said shop and your duties therein?
1: Uh, a a very brief one uh, there is somewhere in the bowels of Berkeley a house painted with clouds which has functioned as a guitar store and repair store and loafery for uh, 52 years now and I've been there every step of the way <laughs> um, but uh, yeah so essentially uh, we've been closed for months and uh, finally, starting to make tentative moves towards reopening, but still have to do a lot to be super safe and sanitize door handles all the time, and not let people actually in the building. So it's right. It's a very gradual process. However, it is also good to uh, to like see people and like interact and not be completely isolated in uh, in my apartment.
0: I'm sure. This, this, yeah. The uh, what was I going to say? Um, do you guys have, uh, do you keep like an amp set up outside for people that want to test these guitars? Well, I mean, curbside? there's a lot of
1: acoustic guitars, but yeah, yeah. I, today, for instance, we were just ran a chord out and, and played an amp inside the shop. We're not, gotcha. to, we're not trying to rock the block down.
0: <laughs> I like it. I like, it's cool seeing how uh, everybody is having to think creatively to rise to the challenges that that manifest during this truly strange and bizarre time.
1: Yeah, doing stuff by appointment, trying to put more stuff online. And, you know, Fat Dog, the owner, doesn't even, like, know how to use a cell phone or the Internet and uh, doesn't take credit cards. So it's definitely kind of a, you know, one of the reasons I probably, just to segue here, one of the reasons I probably ended up in this weird old shop is because it kind of appeals to my uh, my intuitive the past was better was better bias as like the children mm-hmm. of liberal environmentalists or whatever who like idealize camping and like old fashioned mm-hmm. times and adventures the being the on like code. you know ah you can just make that yourself by cutting down a tree and drying out the wood right that kind of thing
0: hmm yeah the 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 code of the Luddites um, I feel like a lot of my guests are have similar sentiments and uh, and and a similar feeling towards technology but uh
1: but yeah, I mean well, the, you know one thing that I think is is relevant about the technology is that if we're doing enough hours a day in digital space. Like the meaning or the value of non digital time actually becomes more precious as a break. I was, you right. know, thinking about the reading of like, well, I was just grabbed this handful of fantasy books to bring down here, and I was like, oh my god, I haven't read this many fantasy books in the last like 10 years. Mm. And I read hours every day of like news and articles and all these things on my crazy phone. And, uh, but i you know in practical terms it's a totally different type of headspace i teach these kids uh guitar and they're often taking guitar in an online lesson after 7 hours of online school and it's like that's wow. not like what our brains were designed for <laughs> at... right
2: right
0: yeah that's that's it's pretty insane the uh i mean it kind of gives me hope in a way cuz i feel like in some ways the like screenization of education might actually like inspire kids to like see it being off of it as something that's cool you know, right a like,
1: cultural lashback.
0: totally totally like you know when your parents get on instagram suddenly instagram doesn't quite have the same luster yeah
1: yeah exactly
0: um, so you know my hope is that with it with uh all these online learning, you know, classes. I was talking to my stepdad, Bob, who's a, you know, he's a middle school garden teacher and he was trying to come up with ways to engage his students during this time where they're all physically separated. And I was telling him, I was like, Hey man, you should, maybe you should just start like an Instagram account where you're like encouraging your students to post stories Uh, about their own gardens and the progress that they're making and he was like yeah but i'm kind of trying to get them off their phones Hmm. you know i'm trying to get them outside and stuff i'm like and i was like that's that's a that's a good point i agree but as i thought about it later i was like well
1: they can go out and take good pictures your teacher is
0: giving you homework via instagram you know that might actually result in them a getting outside because it's cool but then also starting to see this stuff as not just pure recreation and also, you know, maybe attach some of those school connotations to, you know, the phone in general.
1: Yeah, I think it's actually a non-trivial, like, portion of people's, of, let's say, our ilk, are like, familial and cultural Bay Area ilk, uh, where people actually are mostly living in digital boxes and indoor hovels and Mm -hmm. their uh their social feeds become a kind of like eco porn where uh where they're like oh yeah this is the beautiful outdoor hike i took and these are the natural wild crafted you know lemon verbenas scenarios that i just got together for my home-baked bread herbal overtones but then you like they're actually working desk jobs and doing certain amounts of screen time too it's just they're like Realizing that there's a certain cachet both in identifying themselves that way. And, you know, you do want to maximize it. You do want to, like, identify and craft yourself as a person who remembers that there used to be more than this. <laughs> here's,
0: here's the delicious peach cobbler I made after climbing the Seven Mile Cataract Trail as seen on IGTV. <laughs> um, awesome. Well, hey. I think that's a pretty good segue into our topic of discussion, which is, does largely uh, involve a fair bit of escapism. um, And often the most, uh, at least I think we can honestly say in both of our lives, influential uh, type of escapism. I know that you're someone with a, quite the, the, the laurels, uh, in, in, in versing in escapism, in, in, in escapism <laughs> and, uh, in fantasy as a vehicle for that. Um, and you know, I think I, I have, I've dove into fantasy myself, but maybe have a little more, uh, a little more of a sci-fi background, um, than, than, uh, than you might
1: so so, uh, so what if what if we each like put a foot down in the sand and we have a a little a little debate about this because when we get together and we're hiking in the mountains, inevitably, I will be surprised by some fantasy thing you have not read, whereas you will be surprised by some science fiction thing I have not read, and you will sort of try to 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 sell me on it and how right. such and such is very very good, and it's totally worth my time and totally. I'm not going to disagree that it might be, but we could we could take give ourselves like a 45 second chunk each to say if we if we wanted to just like the bare outline of like what makes your genre great like, like let's it. say let's say classic fantasy characterized by like almost inevitably the occurrence of magic or some something like that at least fantastic for a second beasts. there i,
0: I... I thought you were going to say making a genre great again. And I was like, not another one of these MAGA guys, (laughs) but yes, that sounds great. I think, uh, in true, you know, uh, Owen Parducci, Lee Alexander fashion, uh, we can totally apples to apples the shit out of this and make it make, uh, each an impassioned pitch as to why, uh, our said genre is a is a more uh, v- legitimate and enjoyable vehicle for escapism.
1: That's right. Someone's got to win and someone's got to lose.
0: <laughs> this is the fantasy versus sci-fi showdown after all. <laughs> all right. Well, as my guest, um, I think that you get the honors of going first if, if that's not too much pressure to heap on you.
1: Oh, no. I'm secure in my <laughs> my my genre. Um yeah, I would say that the uh what drew me to fantasy as a kid was probably the uh that the magic sort of coincided with fantastical way of thinking. And so I was prone to archaism. I was prone to like glorifying a past with more nature and trees and stuff like that. And wanting to go on adventures by horseback, wielding swords. And the coolest idea of all for me was like the ability to summon fireballs, essentially, and cast them about and manipulate light and fire with my willpower. And, you know, that's stuff that... a you could say a normal kid like me or a total weirdo freak like me could not really get out of my daily kid life, right? I did Mm. not have access to throwing fireballs. (laughs) And uh, by comparison, you know, to sci-fi, the, you know, more metal, more future, more incredibly loud machines and noises and stuff like that. And... So just for me, I immediately identified more with actually as C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien and a lot of fantasy writers would kind of work into their stories. They had these like very much old is organic and pure and healthy. And like that old deep magic is actually fighting the onrush of technology that's destroying the world. So I think fantasy is very deeply interwound with like environmental moralizing and as a kid, I think that that worked for me—fireballs and trees. What you got?
0: Nice. What? I love it, and 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 hearing you speak at, of it definitely like touched all my you know sensitive fantasy parts as well, uh, <laughs> and I definitely can see that. Uh, however, let me let me spit some sci-fi game for you. So, I do think. Uh, that um that yeah, I, I, I see that, that you know, that validity in the elemental nature of wanting to dive into a good fantasy world, of wanting to hearken back to simpler times and to realize your own potential, uh, both in the physical and metaphysical realm. And that's certainly path a path a set of paths that I've walked down myself many a time. Where I uh you know were I to in in classic debate fashion take the side of sci-fi, the way that I would line it out is that for me as a young boy, um that sense of wonder and awe and otherworldliness that, that was the fantasy realm, uh I fully got out of these science fiction stories that took place often on other planets and other worlds with other creatures. There's a lot of crossover, there's a lot of similar thematic elements. But for me, uh, something about the just limitless nature of space where literally anything can happen and everything does happen um, combined with, uh, you know, I think it might, as far back as I could remember, I've always been a futurist and, and, and deeply almost obsessed with trying to like read a chapter of he- ahead in the temporal timeline and always wondering what's the future going to be like. And so fantasy kind of, or so my, my, I'm sorry, science fiction gives you this opportunity to explore these future scenarios and possibilities and kind of live vicariously kind of, it's, it's almost a form of tra- time travel because you're basically jettisoning your, your mind forward uh, along a potential timeline that, Um, may or may not, you know, resolve uh, to be true. And so I think that element, um, and and the kind of sci-fi these days, you know, I've I've kind of refined my tastes. I'm I'm one of these uh, hard sci-fi guys, uh, (laughs) meaning that I prefer science fiction that uh, is set in the future but still follows our current understanding of of physics and physical limitations. Um, So what I really like about sci-fi is I think it's, often very intellectually challenging it does uh require a certain basic understanding of, of things like physics um basic mathematics and some some scientific understanding of, of the cosmos and uh, a lot of these authors are writing you know in, in good sci-fi just like in any other you know fantasy literature but they're they're using sci-fi as a vehicle to talk about uh what the current day societal pressures are but it's like a safe space to talk about these things so you might see certain topics that might be hot button or taboo given today's culture uh able to be hashed out because it's the Gulgamex versus the Quelions not you know insert race versus race or spiritual you know uh follower versus other so it allows for this hashing out of issues um in a metaphorical sense that that I think enables the sci-fi adventure to uh, to make sense of what they're living through in the present day.
1: I think that's actually uh, one of the... That's a very inspiring take on it. I like that a lot. And I do think that there is... Um, there's, there's sort of a lot to the idea that um, some people... Are maybe you could call more you saw described it as a futurist, which is actually a very loaded term and remind me to make you listen to some sleepy head gorilla museum sometime sure. uh, sleepy type <laughs> gorilla museum sometime uh yeah. with it uh, with whole songs and albums about the divide of the futurists and and uh well hold on a sec let's not get down a not get down a track uh hardcore industrial metal polyrhythm is very cool, but let's get back to the future. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think that uh, the idea is that some people are n- inevitably going to tend towards more of like the forward thinking scenario for their mm-hmm. escapism and, and storytelling makes an enormous amount of sense. You said you were always kind of like forecasting or like th- what will happen next. And we're like ex- curious about that. Maybe even like maybe fearful, maybe optimistic about that, but in some way mm-hmm. drawn towards that. And that's an interesting point. Maybe some would say this is one of my strongest character or societal personality flaws. I have an incredibly hard time thinking about the future. Hmm. Predicting it all, making plans. Like, for me, I am almost entirely a creature of the moment and a collection of past moments. And I've always kind of been that way. And maybe for comfort's sake, or maybe there's, like, a series of chemicals in my brain, which make it harder for me to forecast with my frontal lobe. I don't know.
0: It's, it's, you know, it's funny that I like that. I like that theory. Um, I will say that I also, you know, I I think throughout my childhood and even into my adult life, you know, I've always bounced back between fantasy and sci-fi. And and these days I'd say it's about 98% of all books uh, I can't even say read cause I get most of my stuff through audio books now, but I'm usually like going back and forth between I'll go on like a fantasy stint. I'll, I'll dive into those worlds a bunch and get everything that you just described out of it. Cause I also have this whimsical longing for, for the past, you know, Yeah, uh, talking uh, and rats then, and wheels of yeah. cheese yeah and elven <laughs> princesses you know uh but then i will you know at some point it kind of exhaust that fantasy and move in the other direction where i'm like all right i want to like i'm at, think about big giant spaceships and the grittiness of interstellar travel and you know weird you know hive mind swarm you know infectious alien menaces that you know Commander Lightbringer and his trusty M35 have to. Sometimes Hobie you know? craves
1: <laughs> to live among the Borg just to know what it's like.
0: Yeah, well, the Borg, you know, I always felt about the Borg was that <laughs> you never really got this in Star Trek, but I felt like they must really smell. Like every time <laughs> I've seen a Borg episode, I'm like, man, those ships probably just stink, you know? when you're one hive mind why does any part of the collective ever have to wash
1: interesting i would say as a person who came from cooperative scenarios cooperative living scenarios a truly responsible member of the hive maybe becomes more sensitive to washing at least we one would hope
0: but they're not cooperative <laughs> members you know they're they're not individuals so That's it's right. really like they are would one. you wash you know if it was just you living on a desert island, how often are you gonna wash, and would you wash three fingers and maybe leave one unwashed if it didn't matter, you know?
1: Hobie, we got to set a good example. You always wash all ten fingers and the palm.
0: We got a hot take. You heard it here, folks. <laughs> from uh, from my cousin Ethan. <laughs> These
1: are COVID he's, times.
0: He's he's a strong ten finger washer. <laughs> and, you know, we're we're a fair and balanced. A program here so I want to leave space for you know my fellow four and seven and, and if nine I see you not washing <laughs> under your wedding
1: ring I will I'll be judgy
0: oh yeah that's that's a place that's so here
1: I have uh, a question for you yeah. what, what about the hybrid and the meeting yeah. of these things you, so you sort of referenced this earlier a little bit that there's a lot of right. crossover between these things mm-hmm. what do you do you know the name Fred Saberhagen Is that I you know, know the
0: name and I know that you've uh suggested him to me a number of times i don't believe i have uh experienced his his work but i will say this that for me in my younger life you know in my younger days i was a lot more i think open to the uh bridging of those genres of like cuz a lot of sci-fi is fantasy sci-fi where it's like set so far in the future or there's like so many different aliens that it almost it feels like a fantasy world, mm-hmm. and I guess as I've gotten a little bit older and a little bit darker in some ways, I uh, <laughs> I like my genres a little separate. Like I like my uh, my sci-fi kind of dark and gritty and like not so whimsical. I don't know what that says about me, but but and and fantasy in some ways, like I do. I've noticed there is a sub-genre uh, that has evolved of of these fantasy books that are written more like a medieval story that has a little bit of magic but the magic is kind of like taboo and not apparent and not immediately like explicitly revealed. Well, that's it's kind of interest, always hold on, happening, That's an interesting like, point. Periphery.
1: Would you put Game of Thrones into that genre? Yeah,
0: I think Game of Thrones was like was like the most successful
1: franchise uh in so that here's particular the thing sub-time. about game of thrones it took me a hot minute to get into game of thrones at first because mm-hmm. there was this incredibly long first chapter and there's just like you know i, I can no see what they're fire. doing they're building a world <laughs> there's no magic what am i here for how is this fantasy my my you know friend. it seems like this is like soft core romance like why is yeah. my friend multiple friends a. uh, uh telling me to go for this. And then right at the end of the very first chapter of the whole thing the White Walkers are introduced and they have some glowing blue eyes. Right. But then he backs way, way off again and goes deep totally. into politics and sex and totally. everything else It just totally. does not give you any magic and for huge amounts of time. And it's really like an. Uh, in a way it's actually incredibly what's the word tasteful or it makes it like somehow less obvious that it's not real. And Mm -hmm. it just sort of tells you that it has a foot in this world of spirit and magic and weird stuff. It has the license to dip into that. Right. And at the same time, it's like very much a society oriented book.
0: Yeah. And I think that there's an air of mystery that, that then lends itself because you're always wondering like there is something more out there but what is it and what's going on? And certainly uh, in that, in that series, you know, I was very captivated of wanting to know like, what are the white walkers and what are their dragons? Are we going to, you know, is that going to be a a force in this thing? And I think that, you know, fantasy writers can have a tendency just like sci-fi writers with, with future tech, to mm-hmm. get a little lazy in their storytelling because they're like, Oh, a magic spell, the moosh, you know? Oh, I that's right. They almost a, died,
1: but then, Oh, not right. And
0: so it, 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 it can't not, I'm not saying that it always does, but it can bring about a certain like kind of slackishness in like character development in the, the, the plot lines. And I see it in sci-fi as well with like, Oh, they, the inertial compensators kicked in and they, blasted away, you know. Yeah. I mean, like, to me it's kind of a cop out because I'm like, well, I kind of want to hear about how they, you know, make do with the problem of something like inertia. You know, that to me makes it feel more kind of gritty and real and you have it forces you you to be a little it kind of challenges the reader. Well, so this to, is an in- uh,
1: interesting point. One of the inter- so you actually have talked about how you like respect sci-fi authors who are grounded in physics or like understand the rules that they're bending or whatever Mm -hmm. because they're more likely to make something we can actually relate to maybe and in the same way one of the great joys for me I was thinking of uh, all the incredibly formulaic fantasy just vast vast amounts of it derived directly from the Lord of the Rings the same Mm -hmm. starting plot points down to like multiple avatars of the bad guy flying around on misshapen animals all this stuff that's just like absolute rip-offs but the thing that makes it work or not work is how holistic the magic that they, system that they create is i feel like that is really what sets aside you know the ability to create compelling characters is you know classic anyone could write good character in any genre if they sort mm-hmm. of know people more or less well but the ability to plan a cohesive magic world where the magic can get complex, can get big, can get small, and uh, maybe isn't the whole thing. Not everyone can use magic or doesn't use magic constantly, but the idea that, for lack of a better word, it feels believable. It has some rules, and it sticks to those rules, so you can't just you know, win the war against the bad guy at the last minute with a deus ex machina or whatever.
0: Right. Yeah, The it's the limitations, I think, that make, and the way that the characters either rise or fail to meet you know those limitations uh that's what makes it compelling to me and that's what makes a story yeah feel more alive and you and you see that come up you know to just uh you know i i I caught a a couple whiffs of uh the you know the um eye of the world wheel of time rob famous robert jordan epic series where you know right away he just sets out like women are the only people that can use magic in this world i'm creating right and every man who uses magic goes crazy and so they're hunted down that to me right away i'm i'm like in because i'm like okay there's some rules like it it isn't just a you know a
1: world full of and you have an essential conflict because as you're reading it you're like wait obviously that means that men can also do magic or at least some of them can and oh wait now there's this prophecy and there's some dude is it going to have to be allowed to rule magic to defeat satan so
0: totally right (laughs) right and so yeah and so like that then you know that then provides these limiting factors and these pressures that allow you to kind of build you know to to, like identify deeper with with the characters do you know what i've always
1: resonated with um an interesting thing about how most uh, uh, magic writers get away from the, you know, the characters just having, Oh, I've got magic. So we can just go straight to winning the the battle or whatever is that it's almost always tied to physical effort. And it's supposed to be taxing in some way. It's supposed Mm -hmm. to be fatiguing to channel in the wheel of time or to, you know, do whatever It like takes a lot out of you. It's like, some people it's like you're channeling a universal force and it fills you with energy while you're using it but then you're super depleted afterwards some people you're like using your internal force and you've got a finite amount and then you have to sleep to replenish it mm-hmm. um mana yeah some something like that and the uh so i i do think that that what's cool about that is that it correlates a little bit to our actual understanding of effort mental effort and physical effort with our muscles and our brain capacity so a lot of these books channeling in the wheel of time is certainly one of them if you try to do too much magic you can burn yourself out you can lose your ability to do magic which means that there is like some maximum amount of electricity you can hold before your heart stops or whatever and that fundamentally that is how it should be and I think that's one of the reasons, you know, I'm terrified by the existence of nuclear weapons and all this stuff. You know, when the, when the scale of things goes beyond what we can imagine and correlate to the limitations of our own bodies, you know, mm. some people are excited by that extreme, you know, what's the biggest explosion ever type of thing. <laughs> and other people are more like, turned off or frightened by it like i can't even conceive of a billion dollars i can't even conceive of you know hundreds of billions of dollars being spent on nuclear weapons and all the people in the world with the capacity to eradicate the world right now and so um i mean but the fascination that nuclear war has for sicko leaders but also nuclear thinking has for people is like more energy than ever was possible for us to contain and manipulate before and that's, a, that's an example of like uh, an extremist technology driving society and driving storytelling you know tons of sci-fi right. was about like apocalyptic end of the world scenarios that were totally. going to be achievable because of our technological expertise in the wheel right, of time the magicians you... break the world and create a huge unraveling of you know the right. golden age
0: and you see, with like, uh, you know, people like uh, like Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, there's almost this cyclical nature where it's like we have to go through the industrial uh, age so that we can spread to other planets, so that we can go back to like the true, you know, the true life of agrarian living. You know, like Star yeah, Trek. Yeah, an is honest day's work. where i
1: live you know a whole generation before going back to my ship
0: right where everybody you know we, we there is this like idea that we do have somewhere deep within us uh a you know kind of primal desire to get back to a simpler life um albeit with you know an auto dock you know, well, this kill, is, you know, hold cure on. This all is, your this ills. is an interesting
1: correlation you know. here. So here we get to like a Star Wars beginning trope as well, which is the heroes of these stories are almost always cast as the non exceptional people, but right. like the good, honest, simple farmer, mm-hmm. just a farm boy who just happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time or the right place at the right time and gets swept up into these machinations of larger, you know, corrupt politicians and wars and all these bigger stories. They get swept out of their little village. But because they were raised in the little village, they were instilled with the simple values and the homespun ways, yada, yada, that are going to give them the moral fiber. Their
0: virtue virtue is, in the end, what, what is you know, the thing that is needed to win the day. You know, it's it's that their, their small town virtue is like what allows them to wield the ultimate power
1: at the end. Without being corrupted by it.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, and, you know, myself coming from a small town, <laughs> I couldn't help but identify with those characters so, so closely because I did, you know, you know, I, I, I'm i from the Shire, basically. That's right. You <laughs> danced lightly
1: among the leaves.
0: I I had some trees that were my
1: friends, not going to lie. Eating several cakes for breakfast. Even
0: though I drank from their pools, I didn't seem to grow any taller, though. That part was kind of a
1: Do you know what's uh, an interesting difference to me uh, that we de- haven't glossed on yet, which is like, We were talking about, like, a lot of these things being about human nature, sometimes about our societal goods and ills and back and forth, like, some of them taking place in future iterations, some of them, like, looking backwards more, but, like, still fundamentally about human people. I spent insane amounts of time reading books that featured only, like, talking animals, Mm. I, I call to mind the, the Brian Jacques books, the Redwall series Redwall and right. Mossflower, which oh. is, you know, it's really funny going back and reading them now. I just listened to a little book on tape of one of them with the actual author reading him, and it's like his burrow of, of Britain brogue is so thick, like you could barely understand most of the words, <laughs> even though I know exactly what the words are and could almost recite them from memory. Yeah. Um. And the, it's basically, you know, woodland creatures, the good guys, mice, rabbits, squirrels, otters, hedgehogs, and a uh, handful of others like uh, um, badgers. Right. And then they're set in opposition against weasels, ferrets, rats, stoats, wild cats, the occasional venomous snake. And the there are certain things they can do by having them not be people where they're granted actual characteristics of their animalness even though they have enormous amounts of characteristics of people obviously to be Mm -hmm. uh, speaking slash writing in english and um what i noticed in retrospect about those books is that the animals spend an inordinate amount of time feasting and they're just like who knows how, but they're brewing ales and cordials and eating cheese. And don't ask me how, like little mice are milking anything to get cheese made. Right, and, right. You know, and they have some the of them are
0: acorn tarts, and the, man, those books used to make me so hungry.
1: Yeah, I, and some of them are are not even like uh, vegetarians. The otters eat like shrimp and watercress and hot hot root soup. So some of them can eat some. Some of them can eat some other animals. It's pretty interesting. That is. And that was a great example for me of, is there there any magic in those books? Mm, Only on like the most like weird, like sort of like spirits visiting you in the dreams when you've almost lost the the battle. And then all of a sudden your ghost of your father appears and like gives you like encouragement and it gives you the strength to get up and keep fighting and win. So no fireballs in those books, extreme escapist fantasy through just pastoral, all walking through beautiful streams and rivers and woodlands and beaches, and no real weaponry beyond the swords and arrows.
0: Although some would argue that the whole series rests upon, you know, a magical covenant, which is that this is a world populated by talking animals. You know, which kind you of bite like your tongue that, that land was real. Right. You know. <laughs> I'm just saying that's where, you know that's where it has that extra little sparkle. <laughs> it does. I don't think it would have been nearly as compelling a story if it was written about men and women, you know. So no, much I like you that, said yeah. these, these different animals uh whether they're cats or weasels or mice or rabbits they have animal you know they're anthropomorphized animals however they're also using these different animals as metaphors to talk about these archetypes of human of human you know uh you know strengths and weaknesses of failings and successes right. different and it, in personal fact, character flaws
1: bizarrely within those books the mice were all... Um, we're religious and we're like all about making Red Wall Abbey and we're all about like growing food, eating it, and living like these pastoral lives within like a weird little religious cult. And mm-hmm. that was totally their thing. And every once in a was while it ever they'd have to learn to fight. About... But they were essentially peaceniks and uh yeah. you know, live wanted to just live comfortably alone by themselves. What's that?
0: Did did they ever uh like explicitly describe or or explain I, I didn't I never got you know I didn't get that far in the series I think I gave up at Redwall because I just found that particular one really boring right? <laughs> um, do they ever go into what the actual religion is, is it, I mean it seems like it's like a it's like a Christian uh, you know they go, they go back
1: a little bit into the past the books don't go in order so they hops get mm-hmm. back and forward through time with each book yeah and they just, like, very gently in the background, it kind of gives you some stuff. You know, Martin the Warrior, it's, you know, it's it's pretty obviously, as with a lot of fantasy in the English language in the Western world, going to be derived from, from Christianity and some semi-heavy-handed parables. But in this case of those books, not specifically mentioning it. Okay. They, they mention, you know, the squirrels, you know, live in mostly in the trees and in little holes and the otters have underground caves near the water and the badgers dig holes and this that and the other the snakes dig holes but the mice lay bricks and build an yeah. actual buildings in which they like have wear, wear robes and are essentially monks <laughs> it's, it's definitely, a, definitely i a always
0: i always wanted to be an otter in those stories they seemed like they had the best life
1: the otters definitely had the healthiest emotional life and had the most fun. It seemed.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: So here's an well, interesting an interesting yeah. thing I want I wanted to get in um, mm-hmm. that kind of appeals to me as uh, because it brings in uh, an element of kind of fantasy storytelling near and dear to both of our hearts, which is um, Greek myth and Roman myth which is, you know, not that long ago in the grand scheme of things here on planet Earth. So this dude, Fred Saberhagen, starts out with a series of books that are set, and you don't know this as the reader, for a long period of time, they're set in a world where technology got super-duper big, and people developed nuclear capacities, and then there was a huge world war. And all of these... Um, societies with all the nuclear weapons had developed like a shut-off mechanisms, like different types of weapons defense systems where if everything was about to blow up in the world, essentially Mm -hmm. all the nuclear energies and these huge explosions would discharge and be like muffled in some way and that would try to save humanity so the whole race wasn't obliterated. But what he achieved, or you know, what those humans achieved rather, in that uh in that scenario is that the way in which they diffused the nuclear war explosions at the instant that humanity was about to be annihilated was like this huge supercomputer exerting like all this random technology stuff and it swept over the world eradicating all this active technology basically upending the laws of physics and releasing all these elemental magical earth forces so you have these like demons and magical wraiths and spirits and these things going around that are what happened as this bizarre mystical force swept over the world and would like hit a nuclear blast. The nuclear blast would actually become a magical demon floating around Mm. in the air having more or less of a brain or capacity to go around and be malevolent or benevolent depending on what was going on. And the only reason I'm going so far into this is that he set this dimly in the past. And these people are like going through a world where like they find all these technology artifacts, but none of them work. They're like, man, people must be produced to be crazy. They built all these weird, ugly stone and metal things. And like, none of them make any sense. And um, people would collect them as artifacts, but no one had any idea how they worked because they literally didn't work anymore. Mm. And, uh, This guy goes forward into the future and writes a solid 12 books based on a combination of Greek and Roman gods who have basically realized, wait, these humans are, like, running around without any powerful technology or magic. We can control this world. And they kind of, like, moved in. Wait, the
0: gods are aliens? Mm it's not
1: quite that clear. They also might be like created by the humans because humans need gods. And if the humans lost Mm. their technology, they needed gods again. Um, That's like late in this scenario that kind of comes up that humans need something bigger than themselves to believe in and ascribe mystical powers to. But um, anyway, there's this awesome series of 10 or 12 books. I think it's 12 because each of these main God honchos has a sword of power made for them that embodies, you know, if you get sliced with a sword of love that Aphrodite's sword or whatever stabs you, you fall hopelessly in love with whoever stabbed you even to the point of, you know, killing other people to be with them. There's magical gambling sword with infinite luck. There's the undefeatable sword of war for Ares. There's all this stuff. And so um, he sort of saw the world as like technology is this huge possible power that is if it leaves, will leave a vacuum and then people magic will come back and fill that vacuum and people and their religion will fill that vacuum with magical gods. Anyway, I love, I love that ethos. That, yeah. Uh,
0: it kind of reminds me, uh, you know, in some ways, just, just not really the specifics, but, but the the type of like intellectual forethought in in setting up some, uh, almost smart fiction um i think i've told you about this before but there's this great compilation by you know one of the one of the greats in both genres that we're talking about which is that which is larry niven huh. and he wrote wrote this book in the like i think it was 79 called um uh i think it was, oh the magic goes away hmm. which is this compilation book anyone that's like interested in you know that's a deep fantasy reader. I highly recommend because it's a collection of short stories of all these different authors that are writing in with with uh, this constraint, I guess, or this this kind of like unifying idea uh, that magic is an exhaustible resource and non renewable. Ah, and so it's all these stories that are set in worlds where like the magic has either stopped working or it's you know uh, coming back after a long time of not working or, you know, it's, it's not a a reliable thing anymore. And, uh, and it's just interesting, all these different, you know, the classical fantasy story about like a fallen empire and you're now in a world that is a thousand years later, that's living in, you know, the shadow of these monuments and nobody really knows what the monuments are. Um, And, you know, so, so the idea that like there was these, you know, societies that were built on magic. And then when the spells failed, the flying cities came crashing down to earth. You know, uh, there's this great moment in one of the stories where it's talking about the cycle of, uh, of time that keeps repeating where it's the the classical battle of like barbarian with a sword versus sorcerer. Mm-hmm. And like, as the generations like ebb and flow, Uh, every so often the, you know, usually the sorcerer is able to, to, uh, you know, to, to, to kill the barbarian. Um, but every so often there's that barbarian who's just strong enough and the sorcerer who's just weak enough to where the barbarian can make it up the stairs and, and gut the sorcerer with his, with his sword. Uh, but it's just a great, like, you know, it's a great look into this kind of very topic that we're talking about, which is putting, logical constraints constraints on the chaos that is magic and building like very kind of plausible uh, scenarios where characters are having to to deal with you know uh, identifiable situations in a world that is you know full of fantasy and magic
1: well i don't know if you uh ever watch any filmic media but did you ever watch any of she just finished she Raw? oh my gosh what have you been? wait is that like the
0: was that like the um the he-man female alter like absolutely
1: she-ra was a hundred percent of of, from the same world and uh yeah they just did a reboot right and that's that's right i never saw the old one in the 80s but this was an incredible reboot i can't imagine what the first one was like but this is epic you I'm have to put it on my list. You, for it's sure. it, you're, it's so cool to watch. It's just rainbows and awesomeness all over the place. And
0: I'm, I'm, I just dove back into Avatar: The Last Airbender now that it's on uh, Netflix.
1: Oh, which if, if you haven't when if you haven't gone through that saga, easy. I have not. I know nothing of Avatar. You and Rain, need to dive in. The,
0: it's it's the one of the great movie. like stories out there. Like it's so good. It's so well done. It's a children's show, but there's so much cool like Zen philosophy woven into it throughout it. And it has the cool elemental, you know, uh, magic that you like, but it's not from the classical Western perspective. It's an Eastern folkloric world they're in. So you're getting a nice taste of like uh, these, you know, kind of Japanese ancestral myths as told through this Saturday morning cartoon. Hmm. and um i highly recommend it like everybody who's you you kind of got it. the first couple episodes you know it's kind of finding its way there's a little bit of like kiddiness in them but once you hit like five or six you'll get it you'll be in and they're only like 20 minutes long so it's not a big commitment
1: who among us any... has not read through the first several books of harry potter uh thinking this is a little kiddie and then well, gradually seeing the story expand its scope until it turns out that they had a larger vision all along.
0: Well, I never got that because I was of the generation, the Harry Potter generation, where I was actually the same age as Harry in every book.
1: Oh, really? Did you read them yeah. as they came out?
0: Yeah, I was like 11 or 12
1: oh, uh, that's when so the first cool. one
0: came out. And so that was what was so cool about it was, I believe... Uh, that JK Rowling, you know, as a mother was writing these stories, you know, not just as, you know, to, to tell this great tale, but she also, you know, part of her genius was in, uh, there's this meta element to that story where each book becomes more and more mature. Yeah. And it really is, you know, especially for my generation, like we got, we had to wait to read the next one. So every year we'd get the next Harry Potter book and it was, you know, becoming – it it goes from, like, a children's book, uh, young adult, to, like, more and more mature fantasy, dealing with more and more mature situations.
1: Now, there is a writer who, though she is currently struggling with uh, public relations stuff as we speak around the uh, uh, extremely delicate online uh, debate space, she mm-hmm. – uh, she was had this incredible genius for planting the easter eggs she really knew how to ghost up the amount of adultness from book to book but at the same time doing the deep writing where she definitely storyboarded the whole thing, knew exactly what reference she was making in those first and second books that aren't going to pay off for five more books she had a vision, she was not some George Martin half-assing things, you know, just because he thought it would you know, sell, <laughs> sell, sell the cereal or something like that. Like she was really planning the Easter eggs in there for later payoff. And it's really beautiful to go back, listen to different people, read them out loud, go back, read them again, and see how each different way you experience those stories as an older right. person, as a wiser person, whatever, you get something else out of them. Uh, Those are incredibly well written, but they really bugged me when I was 18 and my mom tried uh, to get me to read them because I had read so much fantasy. I was basically sick of fantasy and I was just like, I am not going to read any fantasy based in the real world that starts out in the real world where there's technology and cars and they're in London or whatever. Like I'm totally uninterested in this and it took me until I graduated from college and got sick. And I was totally incapacitated on Fat Dog's Ranch in my mid 20s for a couple days. And in four days, I read the first four Harry Potter books because someone had left four them up days? there in the middle of nowhere. And I just pounded through them like 11 hours a day of reading. I was so awesome.
0: That was like me at summer camp, you know, I think when I was like, yeah, probably 12 or 13. One of the, you know, there was probably book two or book three. I just shut myself in the corner and. Pound hours it. and hours we just re- I I was so caught up in the world. You know, it's funny um talking about you know uh J.K. Rowling's writing storyboarding skills um when I was in college in one of my en- one of my English professors brought up uh it, it, as an example a case study of J.K. Rowling and, and as an example of process writing hm uh, apparently her process each of her characters when she thought up a new character was to write up like pages and pages of profile on each character Hmm. before like injecting them in the story and like write their history out and write like their likes and dislikes and their you know all their personality quirks so she had this like rich kind of uh backstory already written about each character and already understood in some ways, like what their temperates were, what does a Dumbledore say in this moment? You know, how does yeah, Hermione that, that allows her to make them more consistent
1: situation? over time?
0: Exactly, and, and then also like dynamically shift them. Uh, you know, there's a, I, I would imagine more control uh, in in the changes that she chooses or doesn't choose to implement with how the characters develop. Um, but yeah, man, I think this is a good time. I really liked your idea where we each choose and read like the first paragraph of a of a sci-fi or a fantasy book.
1: And then let's see and... what we can tell about it just from that. Sure, sure. <laughs> Do you you wanna go first? Yeah, sure. So just for the heck of it, I picked this um this random book up, which I think belongs to my my girlfriend Raina, because I've never seen it before and it has just a whole bunch of really obvious fantasy aspects about it right from the start and it is called Sabriel by Garth Nix. I've never heard of the book or the author, but you peel it open and, you know, Sabriel is a classic fantasy writer thing where you just change like one letter of a real person's name and, and you get a slightly altered name. Right. Even though, so it's like an imprint of HarperCollins Publishers. It's got the exact same map creation scenario inside the cover where you just have like the old kingdom and there's a river running through it and there's mountains in the north and it's like every other map you've ever seen directly derived from the, uh, you know, the Lord of the Rings and Hobbit map there. Totally. So it's right away like, okay, how far are they going to bother to stray? From the formula, ooh! So this is pre uh, pre Google. This is nineteen ninety five. Uh, so let's see. I'll just read the first. Hmm, this is a little rough. It's a long prologue. Um, yeah. Let's just see. Let's see what we got going on here. Let's see how does the first how does the first one page work, and then see what that tells us about the story. Sounds good. It was little more than three miles from the wall into the old kingdom, but that was enough. Noonday sunshine could be seen on the other side of the wall, capitalized, in Ansel's cheer, and not a cloud in sight. Here there was a clouded sunset, and a steady rain had just begun to fall, coming faster than the tents could be raised. The midwife shrugged her cloak higher up against her neck and bent over the woman again, raindrops spilling from her nose onto the upturned face below. The midwife's breath blew out in a cloud of white, but there was no answering billow of air from her patient. So, that's the first half page. Let's just say, do you know enough to have any ideas about this book?
0: I mean, it, it does feel like a Lord of the Rings analog. <laughs>
1: Well, so far just there's a bunch of little nods to like how things get set up in these mm-hmm. in these books. Okay, I'm building a world. I've capitalized The Wall, and I've capitalized Old Kingdom, and I've come up with a weird bullshit name like Anselstier, S T I E R R E, and, you know, some nice commonplace references to weather. There's a midwife, there's woman giving rain rain. There's a woman giving birth in the rain, and you know, the woman sighed and slowly straightened up that single movement telling the watchers everything they needed to know. The woman who had staggered into their forest camp was dead, only holding li- on to life long enough to pass it on to the baby at her side. So, in practical terms, right away, I think that the woman has died, the woman had something special going on and this kid is going to grow up to change the world. And that's why they're casting it this way. And awesome. it's in the past or in some kind of somewhat, you know, medievalish technology level at highest. And yeah, they are just done a bunch of setup and you know, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. If you can tell a good story um, using the same old map, you like, why not?
0: I'll keep coming back. <laughs> <laughs> it's Until funny you how we like these same you... stories with different names. You know, it's like, I I, uh, I don't mind that structure.
1: <laughs> well, you know, the most ridiculous one, I think, in the fantasy world. Did you ever read uh, Terry Brooks' The Sword of Shannara and all the Shannara books? I,
0: so I picked up a used copy from a hostel when I was traveling in India, huh. and... I got about two-thirds of the way through, and I was just like, this is just Lord of the Rings with different names. Like, it was so, like, blatantly a Here's a
1: question. Was it the actual book, The Sword of Shannara? Yeah. Yeah. That was the only one like that, weirdly. Right. And it was was good. I enjoyed it, but Uh, I
0: lost it before I could get to the end.
1: Yeah. And he he literally made that—was the longest of the books, and it was the most blatant ripoff to create the world— and to create the basic good and bad, he mm. just, that was the one I referenced earlier, where it's a slight, a small, slight, normal ass guy from a little hamlet has to wander up north uh, because some wizard comes and tells him you have to leave home immediately or you're gonna get killed, and it's not your fault, but you're now thrust into the affairs of kings, and that wizard is, like, inscrutable and doesn't tell the little guy everything, and they're fighting these, like, I think it might even have been nine. It was so obvious, but it was like an, a, a whole bunch of these flying bad guys. They were just avatars of the bigger bad guy. And the number right. of ways that they stole that book from Lord of the Rings totally, totally. was like truly <laughs> audacious. Like if people can get copyright infringements for like Uh-oh. using the same chord progression as Tom right. Petty, like, oh my God, oh, yeah. how to, how could he make a bunch of money off this book? To his credit, he invented a whole amazing world over a large period of time, I've never read one of the books that wasn't great. So mm. I think that if you randomly want to go through a, a magic-y period, go read The Talamans of Shannara, go read other books mm. from that series, and you're like, whoa, The Wish Song of Shannara. I mean, the
0: writing was good. It was decent. The like, writing yeah, was quite decent. I enjoyed the story. Yeah. It, it was just funny to me as I was reading. I was like, oh, you know yeah it's <laughs> like if another... i had read this
1: first i wouldn't have this thought but now that i've read right. the second uh, totally. <laughs> it's, you can't get away from it cool so so, you, so i'm going to read
0: you a prologue now please do um i tried to find the first book in this series because it's one of my favorite science fiction series of all time it's i think it's just a two bo a rare two book series Whoa. which is is hardly is a, a series. You know, Right, exactly, which is you know in some ways you know it makes it even better because the story doesn't ramble so much they're they're big books, I think it's about let's see it's about uh well, there's not even page numbers on here well it's 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 about a thousand pages, so it's a good it's a good book um but this is from a book called Judas Unchained, which is book two in Peter F. Hamilton's best-selling uh the commonwealth series so the hmm. first book's called Pandora's star it's got everything i love in a sci-fi uh but i couldn't find it in my attic so i'm gonna read the first the prologue of book two in the series all right and it'll just give you a little snapshot into uh
1: how about just read as much as you feel is appropriate i just like stop sure. halfway through the yeah just though, like paragraph. the basic idea
0: that, that's my that's that's kind of I was th- I was thinking about Yeah. It.
1: Until you find a natural resting point. Cool. So here we go.
0: <clears throat> right from the start, there was something about the investigation that made Lieutenant Rennie Composat uneasy. The first little qualm came sliding up out of her subconscious when she saw the victim's loft apartment. She'd been inside loft apartments just like it a hundred times before. It was the kind of plush, plush metropolitan pad that a group of funky TSI soap characters usually lived in. Beautiful single people with well-paying jobs that gave them most of the, the day off so they could enjoy a floor space of around 500 square meters as they lounged around in an extravagant decor provided by overpriced interior designers. The kind of scenario completely divorced from real life, but full of dramatic or comic potential for the scriptwriters. Yet here she was, a day after the Guardian's shotgun message that announced President Elaine Doy as a StarFlyer agent, being shown in just such an apartment on the top floor of a refurbished factory block in Daroka, the capital city of Arevalo. The massive open-plan living room had a wide, sunny balcony that looked out over the Caspi River, which flowed through the heart of the city. Like all the capitals of, the, of successful Phase I space planets, Daroka was a rich montage of parks, elegant buildings, and broad streets stretching away to the horizon. Under the planet's bronze-shaded morning sunlight, it glimmered with a sharp coronal line, a coronal hue, adding to the panorama's graceful appeal. And then, uh, oh, one last thing. Rennie shook her head in mild disbelief at the fabulous view. Even with the decent salary the Navy paid her, she could never afford the rent on this and it was currently being paid by three first life girls all under 25.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah. So the one of the things I love about this particular series uh is the just that it's so rich with social commentary because it's set like, you know, I think 300 years in the future and uh far but not
1: unimaginably far. Exactly. Exactly. They still have and sitcoms.
0: Yeah. And so that, you know, if I could have found the first book, I would have read that because the prologue is that is like one of the greatest intros to a story. Um, You know, the prologue to the whole, you know, this whole larger story starts with the first Mars landing Hmm. and it's this big moment in the, in the book, it's talking about from the perspective of the captain of the mission and how he's like, or maybe it's the first mate and how he's going to get to be like the second guy on Mars. And the first guy, the captain like, you know, gets off, says some corny, like, you know, one small step for man type speech. And then this guy comes out after him and they're planting the flag. And then they hear this like snickering and, and in some like Cali bro voice, like you're going to piss him off, dude. And they look and there's, two college kids in like old diving suits Hmm. uh, and behind them is like a gateway. And so the, the way the the story starts like this and basically um, what it is, is that at UC Berkeley, these students have developed like interspace gateway technology during the time that the Mars mission was in space. So like they actually weren't the first people on Mars. And so these like two college students steal you know the glory in in a sense, and then it fast forwards 300 years, and all the ramifications of like what having wormholes means and faster than light travel. And it's pretty cool. Um, but uh, UC but yeah, Berkeley, it would I know. be. It's, it would be. But yeah, that's kind yeah. of what's cool about the backstory of this whole thing is that it talks about how in the future, like in the near future, not the future that the story set in the different regions on earth, like all kind of went into specialization where like the European Commonwealth like developed life extension technology, Hmm. whereas like the U S had the monopoly on like developing, uh, you know, these wormholes and the space travel in between the planets and like being able to travel faster than light. Huh? Praise Musk. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And so just like, you know, the different ways that the different regions, um, spread out, and uh, you know, there's a lot of like cool societal ramifications that you know is one of the things that I uh, find really fascinating about sci-fi. Well, but yeah, you know,
1: what else? Yeah, what else? I, I think that you know, there's some interesting, there's some interesting ground about like uh, whether. You know, the, whether the stories tend to focus around like one singular character or not, or whether they're more like a network of believable important characters and stuff like that, how like it sort of like has a lot to do with the essential religiosity, maybe, what mm. uh, of the of the author, and like how heavy-handed an allegory they're trying to do about their their people being a Christ figure or whatever. Right And uh, and I was thinking something about the bridging of these two worlds where, um, you know, you've probably read something or other about the magician being, like, the outcast in a world where they can't, uh, they're not, like, magic is outlawed or n- nobody right. is, does magic anymore, and, like, this one person's magical and they have to hide it or be ostracized or killed or something. And, um and there's also the the countervailing scenario to that, which is that this person is stillborn, a muggle, if you will, doesn't have the magic and they're gonna be vilified or ostracized in a magic oriented society. And did you ever hear of the Dark Sword books? Dark Sword by like Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman.
0: I think I've heard of it, but again I
1: haven't they wrote tons of Dragonlance books. They're good, each good authors in their own right, but they collaborated in this way. And they had, came up with a world where it's following this guy who is the only completely non-magical person in the magical world. And he grows mm. up to be a blacksmith and gets super big and strong. And you know, he's shunned by everybody and develops a big chip on his shoulder. Um, and he somehow make takes this weird piece of unobtainium like stuff and smelts a sword which is like the opposite of magic and drinks it up and dissolves it and so Mm. he becomes the magicless guy who can defeat all these wizards and it turns out like over the course of the scenario this one guy is actually more pure than all these highfalutin fancy big city wizards and all their their easy living magic and it turns out that the wizards to escape persecution developed space travel like a couple thousand years ago and 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 went out into the universe in search of the source of all the sort uh, in search of the source of all magic they find this planet which is spewing magic creating all the magic in the world and they create a seal around it so that no magic can escape and they have all the magic in the world like under like a space balls like airlock and uh-huh. uh and so everyone becomes super magical, and every child can, like, float things in the air and stuff like that. And as a result, the rest of the universe begins to starve for the magic. And mm. it's not till, like, three or four books in that you realize the re- that these uni- wizards in escape trying to escape persecution have actually developed, like, their own downfall because the rest of the, like, universe is ravening after the magic and is coming for them. And it almost ah. now... In retrospect, I didn't think of this at the time. It's like something about humans. I think it's somehow going to be related in my mind to humans, like using up their planet and needing to go find another one, and like the the non renewable resource thing, and like humans going to space and like spreading our diseases and our war and needing to go like consume other planets because we ate it all, and how right. like that's actually. I feel like that's something of a trope in sci fi that at some point the world is becomes unlivable and that we have to go out and find arc theta nine in order you know just to try to- you know find water or something like that it's
0: it's no it's not a trope that's limited to science fiction but it's actually what you know a lot of our <laughs> contemporary scientist you know science billionaire moguls you know a k a Elon Musk is you know, talking about, which is that you know we need to get off this planet and colonize others. And I see the logic behind it, but I do also think that we have a lot of fixing to do before we try to subject the rest of the cosmos to humanity. I don't think we're in the form right now that is meant to be shared.
1: <laughs> do you know what I just learned about Tesla the other day? Huh? Tesla never turns a profit on its cars musk makes all his money from tesla like he makes money from other stuff he was rich or whatever beforehand but he makes more money selling the carbon offsets from tesla to other polluting companies than he does from selling the cars the cars are like a loss like a public facing loss leader kind of thing
2: wow
0: so essentially all these smug tesla owners are, are just, helping weish, whitewash other yeah, polluting companies. Subsidizing people who are driving Fords. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty dark, man. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you that, that as I was compiling lists mm-hmm. to prepare for this most formal and well-structured episode. Um,
1: Tight. Tightly structured. But, uh, what can we do what, for you?
0: One of the things, you know, one of the, the ticks that I'll put, and this is going to be a very controversial thing to say among the nerddom, (laughs) the nerd hive mind, (laughs) but I kind of feel like as far as, as, as like actual literature goes, that fantasy, I think probably has science fiction beat as far as like just the number of like top-notch. A-list, you know, shattering, you know, genre, you know, franchises. Hmm. Uh, However, in the realm of like film and TV. Oh, yeah. I kind of think that science fiction gets the win um, because, you know, yes, granted, you know, there are things like Lord of the Rings, which are truly like an amazing feat, you know
1: amazing speed of making that world game changer and right. yet i will go to bat for that uh series underperforming the books drastically in spite of how totally. people love the movies totally. and having to like chop out a lot of what made the books great and rewriting shit so that it captures the 14 year old girl you know uh focus group scenario i think that totally. those movies totally. were inevitably very flawed even though i have never best, forgiven peter jackson the magic. for
0: leaving out
1: uh, Tom, Tom Bombadil, Bombadil. Uh,
0: yeah and and or I could have under I, I understood why he left out Tom Bombadil but I didn't understand why he left out the scouring of the shire which to me is like what makes it all like come back around again
1: yes you know? very heavy-handed allegory about the bad old politician going and just moving over to another town and polluting it and corrupting its denizens And And it uh,
0: gives the Hobbits the chance to be the most, you know, these, like, powerful figures in, like, kind of contextualizing what they've been through and what they've learned, you know. Merry and Pippin charging on the back of their ponies, you know. That's an image I wanted to see on the silver screen.
1: Strike one for the little people.
0: Right, exactly. But, uh, But, yeah, there's just so many... I don't know there's just so many uh...
1: Well here's a question Here's a quick question Without Wormtongue Does J.K. Rowling give us (laughs) Wormtail Like obviously Wormtail Was an actual rat it made a lot of sense But it's hard to get away from the giants Of uh, the giants of one's genre
0: (laughs) Well yeah They're really similar
1: cringing little gophers
0: Without Gandalf Do we get Dumbledore
1: no you know? not in, not as he is it's I impossible so. I, it's hard you know? to extricate the wise old wizard like do you know one of the greatest lines that people never actually portray about gandalf because it doesn't make sense to portray it correctly visually he has a, wa- a broad-brimmed hat and he has these long bushy eyebrows that stick out past the brim of the hat <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's awesome. That's an awesome visual. That uh, yeah, I can see why they didn't make that decision. That's still, right. It
1: just would be distracting, but just...
0: it would have. But it also would have been more like Tolkien esque in a way. You know, it would have like kind of, you know, yeah. Home is supposed to
1: be into, thousands of years old. His eyebrows right? have been growing for thousands totally. of years.
0: Yeah, I I, I thought they kind of dumbed him down a little bit too in in Fellowship hold on do you know what
1: broke my heart to find out and also just impresses the hell out of me did you know that um sir ian mckellen had never read the books when he did the when he when he acted what he had never read the books they're just lines. And he's british what the hell he came in he read the lines he killed it and he never he had no idea the character he he must
0: have read it since then
1: who knows Maybe, maybe That's not. Wild. He's a Shakespeare guy. Maybe he's like, this That's is all crazy. bullshit.
0: I know. I guess it, for, to me, Tolkien is Shakespeare, so it's kind of like,
1: yeah, ha- like hard for
0: me to parse but, that. But
1: how could he have embodied it so perfectly? The, qua- right. the qualities of his voice, like the, the degree to which he embodied it was so powerful. Well,
0: well, you know that Viggo Mortensen almost passed on the project because he didn't know what Lord of the Rings was.
1: Wait, I, who, which one was Viggo? Aragorn. Oh. And, and apparently, I, tw- I would not know that because I think he sucked. But there you go. Yeah,
0: his well, his twelve-year-old apparently, like his twelve-year-old kid was like, "No, Dad, like the, you got to take this."
1: This know? is this is a good be good one.
0: <laughs> I thought you know I didn't hate him. I thought he definitely, yeah. I mean, it definitely wasn't the Aragorn. He didn't really have the gravitas, and they did try to play up this like kind of. Uh, they really played up the like outcast element of him. Uh, and he didn't quite they really tried to push like the humility and and, and he didn't quite have the like grandio grandioseness or whatever or the Yeah, gravitas, I mean that's I a really
1: well written, complicated character yeah, and it's hard totally. to believe. He feels lightweight to me. When you compare yeah. him to a McClellan or a dwarf or someone else who's really Right kicking the rolls ass a golem or something like that
0: so who do you think could have played a better aragorn this is let's take this direction if you could have had your choice out there they come they come to you they say ethan zachary lee we know that you once could read multiple chapters word for word, recite them into Lord of the Rings. Yeah, you know what? If I'm anyone say, out there gets to I've decide, never thought it's of
1: this you. one second in my life, so I'm just going to go with someone that I would like to see play Aragorn, as opposed to someone who would be the best one. I would go mm-hmm. for Donald Sutherland. <laughs> I think Donald Sutherland would play a great Aragorn, and like a Suther- young Donald Sutherland. I mean, you know, late 20s, early 30s. Okay. And So
0: uh, like uh like like Animal House, Professor Donald Sutherland.
1: <laughs> did you ever see Little Murders? I think no, I told no. I told you to like watch the last 10 minutes of it when you were preparing to marry some people because uh Oh. It was this like e- epic uh <laughs> this epic wedding speech he gives, like a crazy psychedelic wedding speech about how okay. every marriage ends terribly and Why not get married, have affairs, break up again, sin and vice. Each of these is a way for someone. Anyway, he's just this amazing psychedelic ranger, preacher, giving the greatest wedding speech of all time. Um, That's pretty good. I think think what he could do is like the character should be kind of funny and he should have a certain like magic and magnificence to him. And I think Donald Sutherland has that.
0: I think that's what Vigo was missing for me was he didn't feel magical in the way that Aragorn was,
1: you know? That's right. Someone who has, oh, this is something which we didn't mention, but like this preoccupation among a lot of fantasy book. I don't know about sci-fi as much, though some of the sci-fi I've read definitely has this kind of like almost like a genetic uh, obsession kind of stuff with the first men. The original, the pure, the blood of the first men runs in his veins and the idea is that over time people are like diminishing and like at first they were stronger and taller which is kind of a a crazy theory but there was a lot of like um, phrenology. There was a lot of like super racist stuff that people were going through in the late 1800s early 1900s trying to prove that races were empirical existing Mm -hmm. things and that some were smarter than others and um, but I feel like that actually goes through a lot of this, not necessarily in a bad way, but like, no, the obsession with at some point in the past, there was a great golden era of purity, the men stood straight and strong, and the women all were beautiful. And it's like, whoa, okay, it's mm-hmm. pretty, pretty uh, unrealistic and old fashioned. Right. But um, I feel like that is actually a really strong thing possibly you know again it could just come back to a bunch of people who've been brainwashed with a bunch of christianity their whole lives right. writing thinly veiled references to the bible so
0: <laughs> or or a young man who's you know living through world war 1 and witnessing like all his childhood values crumble in machine gun fire and and mortar explosions you know <laughs>
1: That's right. At some point, things didn't used to be, it did not used to be possible for things to be this bad. Weren't those nicer right. days when I could just sit and smoke a pipe of... of uh,
0: when men were men.
1: A pipe of pipe weed <laughs> and eat three or four cakes and drink a flagon of mead.
0: Totally. You know, You know a movie I watched recently that <clears throat> really put me in the Tolkien realm was, I don't know if you've seen 1917, which came out... Um, this last year and was up for the oscar no i never even picture. heard of it
1: that shows it's a... it's an Turns amazing it's not a major cinephile
0: right it's i highly recommend it it's an amazing like world war one concept movie which most for some reason hollywood always likes to talk about world war Two. but i've always wanted to you see you and, and i world both war are or
1: then you've been turned on to world war one in a big way yeah, by the dan
0: by dan Carlin. yeah uh, and that's why I, I love that's my favorite I think of all of those series because of that. But oh.
1: um So anyway, this is a uh, like a, a set in during World War 1 thing. It's set during World War 1, uh follows
0: this soldier's experience uh trying to get like a message across about it, you know some new intel or something to save his brother's life. But the way that they shot it, it was this young I think he's like in his 30s like young director and given this big budget movie and they do the whole thing set up as if it's one take as if it's one shot so there's a couple moments where they stitch but the first scene the first shot of the movie is like nine minutes long and it's just this amazing feat of choreography of like they're essentially walking through the trenches and there's all this stuff happening on left and right of like soldiers, you know, and you're just like right, it feels like you're right there in the the trench. Yeah, the immersion. You know, it's just the cinematography, the coordination to be able to like pull something like that off. The whole movie feels like it's one take and you have to look hard for the stitching. But uh, the thing, the reason I bring it up was because, you know, they're in, I believe, France and uh the landscapes it's you're like this is mordor like it you totally see where the inspiration for the plains of gorgoroth come from you know it's huh. it, that really was what tolkien was living through and Holy shit. you know when you see the depiction of it you're like oh my god this is totally some mordor type shit right here it's pretty wild yeah
1: do you know what that um, um reminds me of and kind of ties back to some of the stuff we've been talking about. Did you see Pan's Labyrinth?
0: I think I got I think I might have started watching this was like I think it came out in when I was in high school maybe. I started watching it but I think I was pretty stoned and I fell
1: asleep. Okay, here's my But advice. I need
0: I've been meaning to revisit it cuz I know it's a really
1: cool Go movie. into Pan's Labyrinth, watch it with good sound. It is so sad and so amazing. Um, but it is a you know, I hyped it up to my girlfriend and like, this is just an incredible, magical, really powerful, intense movie. You should totally see this. I'd only seen it once in the theater when it came out. And that was before I became, like, as much of a student of history when I watched it the first time. And now we rewatched it. And it is absolutely about this crazy fascist dictator in the Basque country and during one of the world wars. And, like everything is happening against the backdrop of of fascism and it's Mm. totally nuts that like i saw it i enjoyed it it was an amazing movie but that that did not strike me that did not like impress itself upon me i must have you know if you were in high school i was probably 25 or whatever Mm -hmm. uh who knows but uh then it seamlessly blends that type of storytelling that type of gritty people being blown up and they're jaws being cut and, and you know, having to sew themselves together with huge ugly needles on the battlefield and drinking whiskey to avoid the pain and then all of a sudden sheer gorgeous like as good as the most magical beautiful looking stuff of Lord of the Rings or better just seriously mm-hmm. beautiful fantastical filmmaking which was like the interior life of this 12 year old girl who's trying to like somehow survive and escape within like, the, the, rig, like the, the ravages of fascism and That's like marrying the two genres of gritty historical storytelling with like the interior life of a child and the ability to create magic and experience beauty anyway and also like create this fantasy place to escape to because in the real world like everything is wrong mm-hmm. so I don't know very very fascinating beautiful thing and I think all of these things Lord of the Rings crazy timely now go back and read some uh what's her name some jk rowling like whoa i cannot believe she saw the tendency towards authoritarianism that was going to like define our generation our current generation of politics around the globe the right it's really uh you know well it was funny because in book what is it book
0: five is where dolores umbridge yep is manifest yep, yep and that was right uh during you know right after i think 9 11 um during or maybe either right after or right before but it was during the bush like early authoritarianism streak and the and and that story takes a dark turn and and my like seventh grade brain was drawing all these parallels to like You know the the the, growing up in Marin with the you know left wing rhetoric and how people were in outrage about Trump or about Bush and all these atrocities that he was committing. uh, You know I I could see that unfolding in the in the Harry Potter world as I was reading that book.
1: Yeah, that's really yeah it's really intense for me now how much her books were like not not at all deeply veiled like they function completely on their own if you don't know anything about like how public schools are administered like she was a teacher and she had been through all this crazy stuff like the technologicalization and the like the big brother spy system where teachers were all being observed uh, by uh you know lackeys who were looking in and judging you and trying to fire you if you don't teach exactly by the book of you know whatever consultant has been test. paid to create the new test And that's exactly what my parents lived through in San Diego. And that's exactly what, um, you know, the experience of school teachers has largely been for, you know, as the as, you know, the profession gets defunded, as they (laughs) as they say. It's largely
0: what kept me from becoming one.
1: (laughs) That's right. It's like my parents, my parents experience of like, oh, you can be teachers and you can end up, you know, if, if you're lucky and and work hard you can end up owning a house well that's not true you could work as hard as you want and you can't possibly end up owning a house as a teacher now right maybe you could end up like buying into an adult co-op and live in the loft for like you know the same amount they actually paid for their house
0: Totally. (laughs) and not not even to mention the like internal struggle of like coming to grips with like what you know is best serving the students and what your administration is telling you politically, you have to communicate to them. I, That always was kind of as just a sticking place for me because all my favorite teachers were kind of off the book, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think that is, uh, uh-oh. Well, I do think we got cut off here. I just heard your dulcet tone singing your uh your answering machine message there. Are we back? Yeah, are you still recording? Yep, still recording. I just I just I didn't know what it was. I think our you got cart, cut th- off.
0: Th- yeah, I think our call dropped. That was actually that's actually Lorenzo Loera of the California Honey Drops on my answering machine, but uh it often gets mistaken for my voice, strangely enough. So.
1: Oh, that's right. I actually figured that out the last time I listened to it all the way through. The, the...
0: Yeah, he—he, uh, he, I, I think it was like three years ago now, and I was just like, Lolo, like I was with him in a hotel room, and I was just like, Lolo, mm-hmm. record me a voicemail. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember my mom calling and left me this message, and she's like, Your voice has gotten so much better. Yeah, you're such so good at singing. It almost didn't have the heart to tell her. Sorry, Ma.
1: (laughs) My voice is just as gravelly as it's ever been. I farmed it out to a pro.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: Well, we. uh, I would say we covered some ground.
0: Yeah, we did. You know, I think that. uh, You know, as as my intuition was. That we were gonna, that this was going to be a, you know, given our backgrounds, a more, you know, fantasy-heavy episode, just because that's where we share a lot more common ground on, which is totally fine, totally cool, um, and, uh, but definitely could be you know i think what what needs to well, happen we discussed
1: is discussed a lot of the uh, i need to maybe get a little more boned up on my side that's what to i was gonna you say is you, you
0: you gotta you gotta watch some of these movies and read some of these books um
1: well i'm still what trying we to didn't get you. talk about was our commonality in it for instance i read right. dune when i was 12 right. and dune me. made a huge impression on me totally. and uh ender's game i read much later, after college, which is like mm-hmm. an interesting one, which styles itself as a kid's book but is not remotely a kid's book. And Ender's right. Game. Did you read was... Ender's Shadow? No, i never gotten into another one. I read part of the next book. I was like, okay. nope, doesn't have the thing that made Ender's Game magical for me. You
0: got to read Ender's Shadow though, because they're two. The two books are the same book. It's like meant to be. You have to read them both because. Oh, okay. Ender's well, Shadow reread Ender's. So Game. okay, so Ender's Shadow is the same story from the perspective of his friend and sidekick. Hmm. It's this bizarre, interesting experiment that the author does, and it's a testament to how good the author is that he's able to write the same story from the other person's perspective, and it's still a compelling story that you will have no problem finishing.
1: Oh, that's super cool.
0: But it's just like you you know, you, you get a lot more out of like you know, there's a lot more that gets explained about why things turn out the way they do. Um, but it's kinda told from the like kind of shrinking introverted guy that like isn't the winner, you know. Yeah, that, isn't the that, star of the in. story. Exactly. And so it's really it's a really interesting kind of character exercise. But
1: yeah, but Dune, have you heard about the
0: Dune movie that they're making?
1: I don't know anything about it. I Every once in a while I hear there's another Dune movie of some kind. There's so, been a bunch, but I don't know anything about it.
0: So they're making a Dune movie. It's coming out this year. Um, you know how skeptical and critical I am of, of, uh, of you know, Hollywood and,
1: you know. Its ability to turn books into movies. Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> um, and I am someone that, I'm one of the rare people that actually likes the, the old David Lynch Dune film that was made in the 80s that is regarded as like one of the biggest flops and failures of cinematic history. I actually really like that movie. Lynch can't
1: stop production on the Bill Murray. Wait, shoot, I messed it up. Um, Lynch can't stop production on the on the vehicle. He has already has Bill Mart Bill Murray signed up to play a moaning bucket of tar. <laughs> There we go. Sorry, back to what you were. That's yeah, you were.
0: no, I just I liked the aesthetic so much of that film, but this. So just to give you an idea of, you know, the, the what they're throwing at this, you know, this this uh, next. Um,
1: Rendition? Iteration? Next
0: epic. I think this. I think it has potential to be like the next truly big, you know, kind of Lord of the Rings level game-changing film.
1: Um, really? Who's doing it?
0: The director is Dennis Villanueva, who directed Arrival, which is like one of my all-time favorite sci-fi movies. Uh, it's very good. If you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It was on my top ten list. Um, so he's an amazing director. Um, but then you also have a cast that is just i mean you got jason momoa playing duncan idaho Mm
2: -hmm.
0: you know count you know call drogo for those of you that are that are uh game of thrones fans you got dave batista playing beast raban you got josh brolin as gurney halleck Oscar Isaac, Duke Leto Atreides. He's the guy that's like the star of the new Star Wars movies that was like the, fit not Finn, but the other guy. He was like the kind of rebel dude. Um, Stellan Skarsgård is Baron Harkonnen. Mm-hmm. You probably you might not recognize his name, but he's an amazing uh, Danish actor. Um, and I think he's, I'm, I'm very confident he's going to pull off Harkonnen. You got Javier Bardem playing Stilgar, which is going to be really compelling.
1: I'm curious, are you reading this or do you just know these yeah, off the Yeah, I pulled of your up head? the IMDB because there's just so many names. <laughs> I was gonna say you really you really yeah, know really, your I really know my actors. stuff. You know.
0: But <laughs> it's just the there's a lot of star power. I feel like they're taking it really seriously, and I have trust in the director.
1: That's a good feeling. Um, where you'll be like, Yeah, I'll watch anything this guy does, but I'm excited about this.
0: Right, right. It seems like they're like actually trying to uh Oh, and it's the, the, the guy who wrote the screenplay is the dude that wrote uh, Forrest Gump and The Insider. And um, I, I think that it has... I'm very cynical about the state of Hollywood today and its ability to uh, get out of its own way and, and you know... Create a actually, coherent
1: film experience.
0: Yeah, I feel like direct, modern directors have kind of forgotten about, like, basic storytelling things like pacing and you know having you know everybody's so worried about the audience not having attention span that they don't create anything that would give the audience the opportunity to have an attention span Um, and when you watch these older films you just notice how these scenes can they let the scene breathe and it drags out and there's moments of no dialogue and it just like you need to have, like, just like in music, you need to have those moments where your ears can relax and be like, ah. Yeah. It's the same thing with film.
1: And you know what's yeah. interesting? I should send you a link This is kind of fascinating, actually. There's a an article I read, a PhD friend of mine who was also, like, a super high-level, uh, um, uh, like, Irish musician, flautist, classical flautist. You could play kind of anything. He was just really high-octane musician, became an academic, more power to him and he published this thing about the concept that they don't make music like they used to and it's true and it tracks the rise of compression and loudness in popular music over time from the late 70s to the present and essentially everything and this is a huge deal with how we perceive movies at some point you probably experienced going to a movie theater and thinking like that is the loudest movie I've ever seen. Or maybe even that was louder than it needed to be or yeah. whatever. And what's happening is that everything is being compressed so tightly that it's constantly full. Your ears are always full. It is fatiguing. And it's like, you can't all you can't have the Lord of the Rings without these epic sprawling chapters of people, you know, gently lolling through the hills and eating. Like you need right. to have real tension. You, and, uh, and release. you need these periods where it's not pure tension. You need so what to have you're saying slow that if ups I'm, and downs.
0: You're saying that if I'm mainlining amphetamines, I'm going to reach a point of diminishing returns?
1: I think that that's what's happened to popular <laughs> music is literally that the, the sound space has mixed everything louder and louder and it's created a flattening of emotional affect such that we literally can't care about it as much because you're like, "Yep, oh, they're playing the same old chords and they're trying to manipulate this way. It's incredibly loud and on some level you resent it and you start to, you know, want a little bit of non-pitch corrected humanity."
0: Oh yeah. I want um, those Bob Marley tracks where he goes super flat and that's just the way it sounds and I fall in love with that, you know. Have you uh have you checked out and and to you know, to speak to your point, I'm in total agreement, but I think I also think that the rise of streaming services like Spotify have done a lot in the way of inflating the value of a song and the value of music. Um, When we have every song in our pocket, every song means a little bit. You said inflating,
1: but you mean like uh, uh, like Like diluting or something? Like
0: like the way that inflation works with the dollar. Oh yeah, yeah.
1: Exactly.
0: They're flooding us with more music than we could listen to in a hundred lifetimes. So like. Those twelve songs that we once jealously guarded in our CD binder or our record shelf—yeah—you
1: literally can't care about it as much if you yeah. don't have to do put out anything to get it. You don't have totally. to put out the effort to find it or to physically protect it or clean it once in a while to keep it working well. Yeah, you might care or, about it, but, but it you care about it, it differently.
0: You don't even have to put it on the in the CD track or on the record player. You know, there's no effort to to get the music to start. You know.
1: Yeah. You know what? Uh, this oh, this is is pretty funny. So you've got a podcast, and I actually have to go up and uh, get ready for uh, get ready for bed yeah, soon. Yeah, I need to eat um, some dinner. You <laughs> gonna do the po- you want to do the podcast thing and ask me? Hey, you got any upcoming? You know, where can people find more of your stuff? Yeah,
0: no, I'm trying to get better <laughs> at this because I always forget to ask this question. But yeah, so Ethan, can you tell us where uh, you know people can find you and give us some good links? <laughs>
1: uh I'll give I'll give it a try. So, uh what the reason I said that is that I am like a few minutes away hopefully from my album being released. Oh. Uh, my first official release of music I've written and co-written with one of my oldest friends and uh it's more or less very funny and super fun little seven song EP and uh we are Ethan Lee and Anthony the band is called Grocery Budget, and you can find it out there in the streaming world if you want to. Hopefully, any minute it's been held up a little bit in the ether webs uh, for some reason. By Grocery
0: Budget. Do you guys have um, like any social media accounts or any like we don't have pa- a website or a landing page people could go to. You
1: can you can find me on Twitter at at Theo Freedom, mostly about tennis and music, <laughs> and. Uh, and some politics and uh it's not at all a big deal i just thought it was funny because it's the only time in my adult life as a music teacher and music repair person and a person who runs a music store that i'll actually probably have my own Something my own plug. little thing to plug
0: well that's awesome what kind of can you just give us a little word uh buffet of of what kind of sounds what kind of genres what does it sound like your, your album
1: Ooh, it really spans some genres. I will say if there's a theme that ties the the album together, it is maybe um, the progression of male friendship. And the album starts with uh, a couple guys going to a Jewish deli and ends with uh, a song about Christmas. They so a it's full circle, multi
0: denominational.
1: Yeah, it's uh we we sped there's a an incredible thrash metal song in the middle about this time when my buddy uh wanted to, wanted us to go out to breakfast at this place and we didn't get there till too late so I tried to order like a salad and a burger and our friendship almost broke up over it. Mm. And he we've turned that into betrayal. <laughs> and it's actually it's actually pretty amazing thrash metal song. I so yeah, so there's a pretty genre hopping stuff and uh it's it's pretty it's in pretty good fun.
0: Awesome. Well, grocery budget available. There, you
1: heard you we heard it here first.
0: Yeah. And <laughs> I would just say to all our listeners out there, whatever you can do in your own lives lives to uh maybe put a little bit of uh you know at ad, ad, adversity in, you know, if you're going to just click play on the streaming services Maybe, you know, do some things to make it a little bit harder. Maybe hide your phone first so that you can (laughs) feel a little taste of what the ancients would call, you know, going to the record store uh, in the new digital world. So maybe that's the way that the album's meant to be enjoyed with a little bit of adversity on the front end.
1: Something like that. We promise lots of dynamics. That's great. uh... (laughs) Anyway, that's uh that's actually been a really amazing thing that, uh, you know, a, a sort of a saga of its own where we wrote all this stuff like seven years ago or something. Never thought it would see the light of day. And home production technology has gotten so good that my friend basically turned it from amateur hackery into like, whoa, this is shockingly good. And you can pay people to master stuff and it sounds even better. And, you know, it's just like... I'm a huge advocate of people not really being um subservient to like the professional amateur musician divide like right. I think it's really healthy to just do something, make a silly song, make something up, and if you like to hear it back and like remember that it happened, then you should learn to record it. everyone in the planet now has the means to you no know, that's shockingly untrue people in first world societies are almost all walking around with a multi-track recording studio in your pocket and it's just an incredible it's an incredible you buy an
0: iphone you don't realize how powerful of a tool even something as simple as garage band is
1: yeah and you know you could have a broken arm and be unable to play your guitar and you could still record a perfectly good album within six months
0: perfectly mediocre podcast you know
1: (laughs) on a good day Anyway, well, I should probably get to bed but yeah. it's been very I'm really proud of uh proud of you for uh coming with the podcast. Well, I myself have thought well, of creating tennis podcasts and all sorts of things for years. You'd and be very you, uh, good at it. You made it happen.
0: You were on my short list of guests from the start, so thank thank you for agreeing to come on and uh making it happen and uh certainly, you know, would like to have you come on again in the future and explain you know, the all the inter- intricacies of the microcosm that is Tennis Twitter.
1: <laughs> oh, wow. Twitter. <laughs> a tweet is worth a thousand words. Yeah. Well, how about uh, let's uh, hopefully let's all survive this pandemic and get together sooner than later.
0: Sounds good. I would like that. Much love to you cousin. Uh, have a good one. Stay safe. And uh, check out Avatar.
1: I will check out Avatar The Last Airbender. Peace, right. peace, peace. peace. all
0: right well there you have it uh a true titan of the fantastical realm of modern literature yeah i love my cousin great dude solid uh conversationalist and all around you know lovable weirdo uh i think part of the way that I measure my own life is, and and as far as my own success at achieving the type of life I want to live is how many lovable weirdos have I managed to amass in my list of contacts. Um I guess this one I just got to inherit because he's my cousin. But uh but yeah. Check out his music. Um, and I do know that when we came back in there, we got cut off. But for some reason, when, when the call resumed, there's, like, a weird, like, buzzing kind of thing. So, hope it wasn't too bad for you guys. Um, and, yeah, that's the that's the episode. Um, hope you guys enjoyed it. And, uh, certainly go check out uh, my cousin Ethan's music. And, uh... <laughs> We'll be back here soon again. I think we're going to be doing another Top 10 episode uh, with my buddy Jesse Lemmy-Adams, the f- the first guest ever to be on here. Um, and that should be coming soon. So be well, my friends. Stay safe and keep on shining.